Welcome to Ivy League Murders, where we deep dive on cases related to academia. My name is Sarah Elkhorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. My name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a graduate of University of Miami, a stylist, and a crime diva. We discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Today on Ivy League Murders, we are covering the Leopold and Loeb case, which was known at the time as the crime of the century. A word of caution, this is a true crime podcast. We discuss subjects such as violent murder and disturbing scenarios. Listener caution is advised. It was the evening of May 21st, 1924. Flora Franks was getting worried. It was going on six o'clock and her son Bobby wasn't home yet. It was a gorgeous spring evening, lilacs blooming in the tree-lined streets of Kenwood, an upper-class Jewish neighborhood in Chicago. Flora would give Bobby a talking to when he came home. He was such a rascal. He was secretly her favorite child and always made her laugh. Bobby went to the prestigious Harvard School for Boys, which was mere blocks from the Franks. She was sure Bobby was fine. She was just being silly. He'd be home covered in dirt with some excuse about baseball. Flora checked the drawing room window again, hoping to see Bobby's little form walking down the street. Why did she have such a gut feeling that something wasn't right? Where was Bobby? By 8 o'clock, Jacob, Bobby's father, was concerned enough that he went to the Harvard School to see if Bobby was there. Nothing. No Bobby. By 10.30, and in a panic by now, the Franks received a call from a kidnapper, assuring them that Bobby was fine and would stay that way if they fulfilled a $10,000 ransom demand. Shaken, but relieved to know that Bobby was okay, the Franks scrambled to get the money together. The next morning, they also received a letter from the kidnapper, and it followed the ransom note trope, do what I say, pay up, and Bobby will be fine. The Franks were elated that Bobby was okay. All hopes were dashed, however, when the naked body of a young boy was found stuffed in a culvert. The boy had been bludgeoned. The killer had tried to mask the body's identity by pouring acid on the face and genitals. Fearing the worst, the Franks could not bear to go see whether it was their son, so they sent his uncle instead to identify the body. It was Bobby. Bobby Franks was well-liked by teachers and peers alike. We'll post his picture on Facebook. He was a handsome kid with a mischievous intelligence. Chicago had seen its fair share of gang violence and bootlegging territory wars, but the brutal murder of Bobby Franks outraged Chicago and the nation at large. If this kid could be kidnapped from his cloistered, wealthy neighborhood, then whose kid was safe? The public wanted answers, and the police were under pressure to provide them. Enter Robert Crow. Crow was a hard-nosed DA with big political aspirations. He was on a mission for justice for Bobby Franks. People were scared, and he wanted to catch the murderer as soon as possible. The police started investigating two teachers at the Harvard School for Boys. These were teachers who were known to be a little too friendly to the boys. The police old-schooled the teachers, trying to beat confessions out of them. One of the teachers happened to have a $10,000 mortgage due. 
the police thought that this was suspicious as it matched the ransom amount. Both teachers had alibis and were eventually cleared. The police had found a pair of distinctive tortoiseshell glasses near Bobby Franks' body. Assuming the glasses were Bobby's, the police gave the funeral home the glasses that were placed on Bobby's face. When the family went to view the body, they were not only grief-stricken, but confused. The glasses didn't belong to Bobby. The glasses were a clue. The, p- the police then traced the distinctive frames to a company that made them in New York. There were only three pairs that were sold in Chicago. One of the owners had an alibi. The second owner was a woman who was wearing the glasses when the police knocked on her door. And the third owner was Nathan Leopold. Nathan Leopold was the heir to a freight fortune. He was a brilliant child with an active fantasy life. He didn't have a lot of friends and lived in his mind. His parents were largely absent and he was raised by an overbearing nanny Matilda, who was rumored to have sexually abused him when he was 12. He spoke at least 12 languages. He was a savant who blazed through school, skipping several grades. He graduated high school at 14. Leopold was a renowned ornithologist He discovered a new species of bird and had already published a book. He was 19. To the police, he was no murder suspect. And he had an alibi, Richard Loeb. Like Leopold, Richard Loeb was also the son of fortune and also a savant. Loeb's father was the VP of Sears, then the biggest catalog company in the U.S. Loeb's mother was a socialite in the Chicago scene and largely absent from Loeb's life. Loeb distinguished himself academically at a young age. Absent a mother, his overbearing governess, Emily, pushed young Loeb, some say too hard. Under Emily's draconian academic lash, Loeb graduated high school at the age of 14. He also developed a knack for lying and petty crimes. Loeb's offhand manner and his natural charm. When the police went to speak to Loeb, He breezily confirmed Leopold's alibi, just two boys driving around picking up girls and drinking. When the police searched Leopold's house, they didn't find the glasses, but they did find Leopold's letters written to Loeb. It was clear from the letters that they were romantically entangled. How likely was it then that the boys were picking up girls? The police started to have their suspicions. Okay, Sarah, so these two young men who initially looked above suspicion were starting to look more and more culpable as the evidence was starting to come in. Yeah, if you think about the Chicago police, they were probably looking for hard-nosed criminals or pedophiles or, as you said, people who had just gotten out of jail. These two well-dressed, well-appointed, well-educated young men didn't fit the typical sort of criminal profile that I'm sure the police were, were, were looking for. No, and I mean, as we were talking about, you know, earlier, I mean, this is long before criminal profilers, but if you were to have a criminal profiler, I mean, this is kind of not at all what you would profile, what you would expect. That's right. I mean, no criminal record, uh, no history of any, you know, no, they're, they're, they don't have any history of abusing children. Yeah, no, that's right. It it just sort of probably felt like it came out of left field, but also they, they, they couldn't, uh, you know, they still had the glasses that belonged to, to Nathan. And so 
I, I think when they go back and confront him about the glasses, he claims that he dropped them during a birding expedition in the, in the area. But those, those glasses are right next to Bobby Frank's body. I mean, what is the likelihood? And it seemed like such a strange reason, but he, you know, he could actually show them, you know, Nathan Leopold could actually show them, hey, yes, I have birded in the area. You know, he, he could kind of prove it. But I think it, I think in finding the letter, uh, you know, the, the sort of romantic letter between them and the glasses, I think they really started to have their questions. You know, you know and I think it's important to note that, you know, talking about homosexuality in 1924, I mean, this would have been a huge taboo. Right. This was not home. It was not acceptable to be gay in 1924. Not at all. And so the minute the police found letters, you know, talking about a sexual relationship, that that really cast some suspect made them a little bit more suspect that's right that's right because that would have made them deviant that would have cast them i think in those days as being deviant absolutely i mean but i still kind of think if they had not found the glasses they would not have they would not no have i agree with you caught these two boys. Yeah. but but so then what happens when they start to really focus in on leopold and Loeb? well i mean we see right away that the the you know, the perfect criminals, these boys who were, you know, really felt that they were more clever than any text, any criminal out there, fold right away. Yeah. Confess. They That's confess right. right away. And it is, uh, it's Loeb that confesses first. He breaks first. He breaks first. And then they go to Leopold with, with Loeb's confession. And the minute he knows that Loeb is confessed, he confesses too. And they, Blame, they each blame the other one. They point the finger at each other. I think it probably didn't help, too, that Leopold... I think Leopold was extremely arrogant. And I think that probably didn't help his case initially with the police, either. I think they... You know, he wasn't a very likable person, put it to you that way. I could see Loeb kind of, like, charming his way through, yeah. the, through the interview. But I think Leopold was... Kind of a creepy... Kind of creepy and kind of... Yeah, just not very likable. No, he wasn't. But what's kind of fascinating is you don't get the impression that once they're caught that there's like a a level of dread and doom that their lives are over. It it almost turns into kind of an exhilaration with the notoriety. That's right. Because they're instant celebrities. Right. Once they confess, they really kind of, I think they really groove right on the the notoriety and and they kind of revel in it. Right, they revel in it and they become, I mean, this case is the biggest thing in the nation. I mean, it was big when Bobby Franks was murdered and then once Leopold and Loeb are caught, the unlikeliness of the suspects, it just becomes enormous. I mean, it's the crime of the century. Crow the prosecutor was ecstatic because Leopold and Loeb, in their thirst for notoriety and attention, led the police and press to each stop they made in preparation for the murder. They literally drew a map for them. This level of premeditation and planning ensured that the boys' defense attorney would not be able to claim insanity for their client. As the evidence unfolded, the odd dynamic between Leopold and Loeb began to emerge. So I, I, I think what people were really wondering is, 
how could these sort of two perfect seeming boys from great families, well-educated, nice looking, uh, how, you know, what led them to, to commit, uh, you know, commit this senseless crime. And, you know, there, there is, uh, I, I think everybody was just sort of baffled by this. So as people started kind of putting together their dynamic, Leopold and Loeb's dynamic, I think they both had actually had a lot of similarities in some ways. And I think it's the dynamic between them that really fascinates us because I think that, and we often see this with people who commit crimes together, that without one, we would not see the crime, you know, without the two of them egging each other on. And that certainly is the case here. Um, we see that Leopold develops, Leopold is somewhat of an outcast. He has a very, very high IQ and he's, a, he's I mean, they're both prodigies. They both go to university as adolescents and in a way they're kind of kindred spirits, but that relationship very quickly becomes toxic. And what begins to happen is they develop a sexual relationship and for Loeb, sex isn't, you know, really a, the most important thing for him. But Loeb is starting to experiment with more and more petty crimes. And Loeb really needs an audience. He needs a wingman. He needs somebody to commit these crimes with him. And really what develops is them trading sexual favors for Leopold going along with him on his crimes. In other words, Le Leopold wanted sex from Loeb. He was in love with Loeb. He was in love with him. Yeah. And and they, I think they were both avid readers. And I always, it struck me um, in researching this case that Loeb, um, from a very young age, loved um, crime novels. You know, he loved... And his nanny, if you remember, governess, Emily, was super strict, wouldn't let him, you know, ever read any crime-related stuff. So, I mean, I, you know, I think we feel his pain as, you know, someone who's interested in crime and not being able to really read about it, you know. And, right, I mean, hopefully and, we wouldn't be, you know, pushed into such a deviant lifestyle <laughs> if we weren't weren't allowed to read Helter Skelter one summer, but... Yeah, but, I mean, look at Laura, if... Someone said you could never read another right, true right. crime book. You know, you'd be a mess. A mess, right? But you know? but not not a criminal mess. Uh, but back to Leopold and Loeb. They they really uh, they were highly intelligent, and they were. But I think just emotionally, still uh, very young, young, immature men in some ways, and they found each other. And I think in finding each other, and, and one thing that I was thinking about too is that that it's the absence of kind of women in their lives. They, the the women who are in their their lives are both these incredibly sort of, well, one very domineering governess in the case of Loeb, and and in the case of Leopold, you know, it was said that his governess actually sexually abused him. So the the their kind of relationship to women is very is very odd as well. And right. And they've developed, you know, their own set of morality where, you know, they, they're atheists and they really believe that 
they can do anything they like as long as it feels good. Right. And that, and that is, doesn't just come out of nowhere. I mean, they are, um, Leopold especially is a huge fan of Friedrich Nietzsche. Uh, Nietzsche was a German philosopher and he, Nietzsche's, I'll go into Nietzsche a little bit further in the podcast, but he, you know, his, um, his sort of uh, Nietzsche's philosophy was about, first of all, you had the master morality and the slave morality, and that played in personally for Leopold and Loeb, where Leopold was the slave, um, Loeb was the master, and they sort of both, you know, mutually kind of needed each other to fill these these niches. But not only that, uh, Nietzsche's philosophy also has to do with um, with the Ubermensch, the Superman, the idea that you have sort of regular human beings, you've got animals, regular human beings, and then these sort of supermen, both Leopold and Loeb considered themselves to be supermen. And that, you know, the the kind of final, um, you know, some result, because they had been committing these petty crimes and getting away with it and kind of getting kind of getting a rush out of getting away with these petty crimes. But it wasn't enough. It wasn't get, providing them, you know, they were, you know, there was some arson. They broke into a fraternity house where they actually acquired the typewriter they later wrote the ransom note on. But each of these crimes was not providing them the thrill that they really were looking for. And this is how they began to decide to create the perfect crime. Right. And, you know, they wanted to be in the newspaper. They wanted all of the accolades from the crime. They wanted to fool everybody. Oh, they wanted to get away with it, by the way. They, they wanted to get away with it. Know, but they but they wanted to, to plan the perfect crime. And, and actually, didn't you say that the letter that they wrote uh, to uh, to the Franks was completely like grifted from you know, a crime magazine. Crime magazine. Um, They thought they were smarter than everyone and they could pull off the perfect crime and and fool the police and the investigators and the lawyers. And, you know, this was their plan. And they felt that they were of, you know, they were the supermen. They could get over on the regular men. That's right. And that when you, uh, they really did not hold themselves to any kind of, of morality. Um, their morality was, hey, if we get a thrill out of it, you know, we're we're so above regular human beings that that's just fine, right? You know, and they they really they really had no they seemingly had no remorse about it either. No remorse, even when even when they confessed, even when they were in court. They seemed to bask in the attention, and and, and even even Frank's. Uh, no, not Frank's. Even sorry, even even Leopold, when asked by a journalist, you know whether he had any feelings about this, he said, well, "No, why should I? I mean, it's this is like a six-year-old boy pulling the wings off of an insect. I mean, it was so incredibly un they they unfeeling and un so unattached to any kind of empathy or." emotion or it's just anyway and as we know there are psychopaths and sociopaths who are void of void of you know conscience and emotion and i think that we see that here yeah so leopold and loeb lead uh lead the police and lead 
a throng of journalists around. Right. They lead them around to, to uh, recover the typewriter and to show them where they purchased the other equipment or, you know, where they purchased, they purchased stationary in preparation for the crime. They purchased hydrochloric acid so that they could get rid of any identifying features on Bobby. They purchased the rope, the chisel. These were all done the day before the murder. All of these things were done in preparation. This was very clearly planned. So they did all of this stuff the day before the murder, and then they planned to meet the morning of the murder at 11 a.m. at the University of Chicago. They would go rent the car and then go look for a victim. Mm -hmm. They had not chosen a victim yet. And they rented a car because they basically wanted to alibi Leopold's car uh, by insisting that the brakes be fixed. So in other words, it gives sort of an alibi for the car. They also knew that it would be too easily to spot because it was a was a red sports car, so they it was too flashy. So they thought that having using his car would make it too you know too easy for a witness to see them. Mm-hmm. So they rented a you know less obvious car. Yeah. And so they they really did pick their victim at random too. They waited outside of the Harvard School for Boys. And they were just looking for the right opportunity. They were walking around for about two hours waiting to find somebody alone. And they had several other students in mind, but they couldn't get them alone. Finally, they see after several hours waiting, a little after four, they see Bobby Franks walking alone. Right. And he is actually Loeb's second cousin right and he had just played tennis at Loeb's house a few days prior so Loeb knows that he will trust him and he calls him over to the car talking about tennis and asks if he wants a ride and the tragic thing is Bobby Franks says oh no thanks guys I you know I live a couple of blocks down the way the down the way and they say oh no 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 let us you know let us drive you let us drive come on in we'll talk about the tennis the tennis game we played yesterday and that's and they attack and kill him immediately it's an immediate attack and there's some dispute of who actually is the actual murderer like who right we don't know right we don't know Bobby. who they're both involved we don't know who landed the first blow but they kill him immediately they well they bludgeon him and then they stuff a rag into his mouth that then suffocates him. right because he doesn't die right away and then they have a dead body in the back of their car and they want to dispose of the body, but it's still light out. So they have to kill a few hours. So what they do is they drive around a lake called Wolf Lake and they park and they get hot dogs yep. and root beer and they wait for it to get dark so they can dispose of the body. And that's what they do. They, they had pre-decided on a, a, a drainage pipe uh, Leopold knew this area from when he was out birding and they take the body there. They undress the body. They pour hydrochloric acid on Bobby's face and genitals because they had heard you could identify somebody by their genitals. And then they stuff his body into the drainage pipe. And it's, we should also know that they did have a weapon, a gun with them also, you know, they didn't use it, but they did, you know, they were, they were going to kill somebody that day. This was going to happen one way or another. And they dispose of the body. They take the car back and they walk, they 
wash it out. They clean out the blood with soap and water. They have drinks with Leopold's father, and they act as if nothing happened. And to them, nothing did. Right, and to them, nothing did. And they really thought... We got away with it. We got away with it. They were were actually quite thrilled. Crow was not particularly interested in Leopold and Loeb's dynamic. For him, they were evil. Full stop. Crow sat back complacently. It must have given him a lot of satisfaction to have the two monsters so squarely in his crosshairs. Crow had come from humble beginnings and had worked his way through Yale and up the political ladder. It must have galled him that these boys bound for Ivy League born with silver spoons, had thrown it all away on a senseless murder. The boys had confessed. They had admitted to premeditating the crime. He had this case in the bag, and he wanted blood. Above all, Crow wanted a hanging case. The parents of Leopold and Loeb were desperate to save their boys from the gallows. Enter Clarence Darrow. So, Laura, tell us about Clarence Darrow. (laughs) Well, Clarence Darrow, who is one of the most famous defense attorneys of all time, um, he's also referred to as the attorney for the damned, often the last hope for the indicted, was a rough and tumble attorney from Ohio. Uh, He never actually graduated from law school. He went to law school for a year, and then he went and apprenticed in a law firm because he couldn't, his family couldn't afford it. And just an absolute genius mind who, I mean, he just captivated courtrooms when he spoke. He did. And he was vehemently anti-death penalty. Really, it was like his life's mission was to end the death penalty. And he took on many, many cases pro bono um, for people who were facing, you know, as they said then, the gallows. This was not one of those cases. People speculated at the time he was paid a million dollars. He was not. He was paid... $70,000, which would almost be the equivalent to a million dollars today. That was a great deal of money. By, you mean by the families of Leopold and Loeb? Right, by by Loeb's family. And they were actually, when, when they were introduced to Leopold, when he was introduced to Leopold and Loeb, they were actually shocked and disappointed because they had heard they were getting this famous, famous attorney and he came in in this he was disheveled and his hair was unkempt and his shirt was hanging out and he was dirty and he, you know, he had like egg on his tie. Yes, he know. was, <laughs> but he was, that was Clarence Darrow. He was, uh, you know, he was a genius mind, but he was not the most well-kempt man. And, and, and he is facing this hopeless case. I mean, there's no, he, he can't think about it. He can't argue for the boys. They, he can't argue insanity. At this point, he can't, and he's brought in. They've been they're arrested ten days after the murder, and then Clarence Darrow's brought in, and they've already confessed. They've led them to all of the evidence. So by the time Clarence Darrow tells them to stop talking, it's really too late. Mm-hmm. You know, it really is a hopeless, hopeless situation. So he's brought in. Really, he's not brought in to get them off, as many people speculate at the time. He's brought in to save their lives. I also have to mention, too, there's a history with Crow. He had beat Crow on a very high-profile case, and Crow was bitter as hell. So it was like this rivalry between these two sort of uh, giants in many ways. You know, Crow representing the, these boys are evil, send them to the gallows, you know. And Darrow being anti-death penalty is, he's got to figure out 
a way to to not get these boys off. But what do you do with this hopeless case? Right, to save their lives. I mean, that's all he's doing, and that's all the families want is to spare their lives. That's right. And, and so and so he he they had entered a plea of not guilty. And then Darrow comes in and he absolutely now Crow is expecting a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity, and that's really what he's prepared for. And he's prepared for a slam dunk and a big trial and a lot of notoriety that's going to help him politically. And what does Darrow come in and do? He shocks everybody and he comes in and he pleads guilty. And it changes the whole game and it makes, you know, completely, completely throws Crow for a loop and the whole dynamic shifts. And now the whole, now the focus is not on Crow, the focus is on Darrow. And so the reason that, that this is so clever, what Clarence Darrow does here is because by pleading guilty, he eliminates a jury trial. And what Clarence Darrow had done prior to this is he had sent some people out in the streets of Chicago and he had polled the public. And what he had found was about 60% of the public was sure they were guilty. So he knew that if he had a jury trial, that the odds would firmly be stacked against him. And he also looked at his clients who, quite frankly, were really inappropriate in court. They were not, they were not their own best friends in court they were snickering they were their affect was really off very inappropriate they whispered to each other um you know we'll post pictures you can even see that even their looks they even their looks to each other which are sometimes even a little bit intimate were very inappropriate and so by pleading guilty the case goes right to john caverly who's the judge and so it all becomes uh it becomes a, a bench trial so now it really becomes, you know, it goes between, you know, it's Crow versus Darrow, and it's all going to be decided by Judge Caverly. That's right. But but Crow still has to put forth all of his witnesses, and there were something like 80 witnesses. Right. Even though they've pled guilty, since the defense is putting on mitigating evidence, the prosecution is still still responsible to put up the evidence that the crime took place. And he puts up, my understanding is he puts up a slew of some of the top psychiatrists who, who say basically these boys are sane. You know, they, they make that argument, right? Right. And what, what is really groundbreaking about this case, which it's interesting now because we're so used to this, but this is the first time that diminished capacity had ever been used as a mitigating circumstance. So he takes their mental weakness and used that as a diminished capacity. So he's not saying they're crazy. So so Darrow is using psychological weakness as as an argument. It's not necessarily insanity. No, it's a it's a mitigating factor. He's saying that they are physically and mentally sick. And in fact, they did a whole battery of tests. I mean, they tested their endocrine systems. They tested them, you know, psychologically. They, they did every test known. There, they did stool samples. They tested their urine. I mean, this is, they did everything. And so he, he, and he's saying, you know, they are physically and mentally sick. They're not insane. 
but this is a diminished capacity. They would consider depression being sick. So these things, they say, they have psychiatrists come in and say, Loeb is a, an emotional five-year-old who still talks to his teddy bear. They were brought up sheltered. They were, had overbearing nannies, you know, all of these factors. And now this is the first time where we, you know, generally in the past in the justice system at this time, criminals were looked at as either good or evil. It's Black true, but in white. But this is probably one of the, or the first case of affluenza. It well. is the first case of, of, this is the original affluenza trial. But it's also the. Wait, 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 wait explain affluenza. Because <laughs> there is, it's slightly comical. Affluenza is when you've been given too much and therefore you can't handle, you, you've been given so much that you therefore don't have the capacity to handle all the privilege. And we saw that with Ethan Couch when he he got off of a, a, I think he killed four people in a DUI and he actually pled, that was his defense, was affluenza. He was overprivileged therefore and had bad judgment. It's hard to have a lot of sympathy for an affluenza right. cause. It is hard yeah. to have a lot of sympathy <laughs> for an affluenza and the cause. But this, this, this was, you know, this was a diminished capacity case and I think it was one of the first times that people saw a criminal they started to see shades of gray maybe people aren't good or bad maybe the environment shapes people it's right but meanwhile you have got crow crow is apoplectic he is railing against this I mean he they are yelling at each other in court crow and Darrow in, in all of this in front of a packed courtroom with every journalist from all over the country and internationally there taking pictures writing stories i mean this was the case of you know the century the the decade this was a huge huge case and in some ways crow's case seems bulletproof it does it, it does you seem bulletproof. i mean what's what it should not be lost here is that bobby franks was a beautiful intelligent 14 year old boy who had been killed by these two other bo older boys completely senseless senseless random exactly but i i do think it's important uh i think just you know this is a true crime podcast and i think when we we look at so many trials and i think it's important to look at this trial and the groundbreaking nature of looking at diminished capacity and this being the first time we're looking at it and really what is at stake here, it's no, there's no doubt in anybody's mind of the guilt of these two young men. It is whether they are going to be sentenced to death. Right. That is the bottom line in this case. And so Crow presents his argument, you know, and he has a very compelling case and a lot of public support. A lot of public support. And, you know, and then, and then Darrow presents... His argument, which is about a two and a half day or three day, three, three day, uh, three it, day. It, it's basically a treatise against the death penalty. It is, it is, and he sees it not just for Leopold and Loeb, but for any cases that will come after. And and, it, and what what's striking to me in reading about this case was that the sort of unmovable. You know, I can't remember which of the boys, Leopold or Loeb, one of them was crying at one point during Darrow's speech. The judge was also crying. The judge was they, also crying. I mean, this was how moving Darrow was and, and, you know, what a captivating speaker he was. 
um, and that sounds so taxing to think of listening to somebody for three days, but apparently he was quite captivating and, and moving. And, you know, he really did start to make people think about shades of gray and how the environment shaped these boys. And, but, but then Caverly has a, a, a big, he has a big responsibility. A big, and let's not forget, this is the last case before he retires. So That's right. this he's, is going to be what he remember. He's remembered for right. So does he? Does he vote for the gallows, or does he? Does he vote for the past? As it said, very, you know, this is what Darrow puts to him. Are you? Are you voting for the past, or are you? Or are you voting for a more progressive future? In other words, the past is is hanging, you know, and the more progressive future is. Mercy. So, Laura, how did Caverly vote? Well, after days of contemplation, Caverly voted to spare the boys' lives and give them life plus 99 years. And what's very interesting about this case is even though we saw so many groundbreaking things happen at the trial and we saw psychological weakness used as a mitigating factor and we saw medical testimony be used as a mitigating factor. None of that mattered to the judge. The only thing that he took into account in his decision was the age of the accused. And that's why he did not sentence them to death, because they were 18 and 19 at the time of the crime. And so after all of that, and that was the reason that he made that decision, or so he says, because we do know that he was somewhat of a liberal judge. He was not known as a hanging judge. He was not known as a hanging judge. Yeah. So after, so they go to prison. Actually, I th- they did pretty well in prison, did they not? Like they, I think they kept them together for a while, Leopold and Globe. They kept them for together for a while, and they were eventually separated. And um, and then and then eventually Loeb was murdered in prison. Well, for supposedly coming on to another inmate. Right. Right. Yeah. So he was stabbed in the shower. Right. Uh, Leopold got out, right? When I think he was 58 or something when he got out. So right. A long time after a long, long time. And he 38 actually, years right. in prison. And he actually like did some good things after he got out and actually did some good things in prison too. And it be, he became kind of like this model of prison reform, basically. Yeah. He set up a library in the prison. I mean, he was a very intelligent man. He was a model prisoner. He got out. He moved to Puerto Rico. He continued to be an intellectual and write about birds. He remarried. And 10 years later, he died of a heart attack. That's right. And he begged. When he got out, he begged the public, the press, just to leave him alone and let him just live his life, basically. But So that's Leopold. You know, I, I do, I still think, though, had they continued along the path that they were going down and had gotten away with the murder of Bobby Franks, I think they would have, they would have reoffended. They would have kept, I don't, who knows if they had not been caught. I, I think that group think that that sort of dynamic that they that toxic mm-hmm. dynamic that they had, they, they would have kept going. I think they would have become serial murderers. I really do. And I think we may have seen a, a rash of murders at Harvard Law the following fall. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Because uh, Leopold was on his way to Harvard Law. He was on his way to Harvard Law, which is pretty scary. Yeah. 
Nietzsche and the power of words. Leopold was obsessed with the Nietzschean idea of a superman or an ubermensch. Both he and Loeb adopted this idea as a way of expressing their superiority. They considered themselves above and beyond the average moral code and that they could commit a murder as long as they got a thrill out of it. A mere few years later, the Nazis would also embrace this idea of Ubermensch, the superior man, and Untermensch, the underling or inferior man. Of course, for the Nazis, Germans were the Ubermensch, and everyone else was inferior. According to Nazi racist theory, Leopold and Loeb, being Jewish, would have been considered inferior. By the way, Nietzsche is pronounced Nietzsche in American English pronunciation and Nietzsche in the German. Nietzsche himself was not an anti-Semite. In fact, he was an anti-anti-Semite, positing his admiration for what he called the moral genius of the Jews. It was his rabid Nazi sympathizer sister, Elizabeth, who co-opted her ailing brother's works and twisted them to become the cornerstone philosophy of the Third Reich. What does this have to do with Leopold and Loeb? Clearly, there's something in Nietzsche's philosophy that appeals to psychopaths. I believe it's the narcotic of the Ubermensch's superiority that allows the shedding of traditional morals. Don't forget that eugenics was a very popular movement in America at the time. Eugenics was the twisted idea of purifying the gene pool, that one could breed out feeble-mindedness and disease in an attempt to create better humans, quote-unquote. At its height, the eugenics movement conducted sterilization of what it determined to be unfit humans, mostly poor minorities. It's a dark chapter of American history, but I can't help thinking that if this is the prevailing thoughts about fellow human beings at the time, that it didn't have an effect on Leopold and Loeb. I look at Leopold and Loeb as some horrifying recipe, two highly intelligent, privileged boys who were voracious readers of Nietzsche, crime novels, and Oscar Wilde. Wilde was a late 19th century Irish novelist. He was an esthete, meaning that for Wilde, beauty and pleasure always trumped morality. Sounding a bit familiar? And what was the logical and penultimate conclusion for Leopold and Loeb, the supermen above all morality? It was a thrill murder. In this podcast, Laura and I are interested in the why of murder. I think you have to look at societal influences what someone was reading or watching, their familial situation. Both Leopold and Loeb had bright Ivy League futures ahead of them. They probably would have been CEOs or high level in academia. Maybe Bobby Franks would have gone out to Hollywood and made movies or become a tennis or baseball legend. Leopold and Loeb, in carrying out quote-unquote the perfect murder, robbed the world of three bright futures. This is Ivy League Murders. We'll see you next week. We are Ivy League Murders. Our music is composed by Russell Jarvis. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram. Please follow us. And if you enjoyed the podcast, tell a friend and give us five stars. See you next time. Until then, stay safe and stay curious.